0: It's funny that uh, in the morning we prayed about healing, protection, um, thanksgiving. Um, and one of the great psalms that is, uh, that we've spoken about all this, is Psalms 91. So in Psalms 91, it's, uh, you know, my mom made me memorize it as a kid because there was a lot of powerful stuff in it. A um, couple of things about Psalms 91, firstly, it's a protection psalm in a sense that if you need protection, if you're in fear or in danger, or you feel something is bothering you, then this is a great stop to go to. It is very powerful. Um, and the reason why I'm talking about Dunkirk over here is because, um, you know, there's a movie out. Christopher Nolan directed it. It's one of my favorite directors. Um, and it's basically about the miracle of Dunkirk where thousands of men were evacuated from this island uh, that the British have sent their troops in. And basically what happened was when they went there, they realized that the Germans' foref- uh, forefront had already conquered the place, and they were waiting for them. And so then the Germans started bombing them, started shooting at them and things like that, and they were stuck. So they managed to evacuate a whole bunch of people out, but they still had 400 men left behind. They couldn't get to them because of the, uh, the German air bombers and things like that. And so the British army were actually afraid to go in because they feel felt there be more casualties trying to retrieve these men. So, what happened was the civilians went in with the fishermen, you know, the little uh, boats and the little trawlers, and they went in and managed to rescue them, and not one single person died, right? And according to eyewitnesses out there, the men were singing Psalms 91. They were shouting and singing it, and praying it, and praising it. That's how they kept alive. Um, yeah, Stephen Morlock was a war correspondent who was in there with the troops, and he witnessed all this. In fact, he said one of the chaplains was lying on the ground, and the Germans were shooting at them. And after he got up, the bullets were all around him, but not one single one hit him. So he was singing Psalms 91 too. So it's a great psalm for protection. Uh, it's also a psalm that we can pray for for miracles. Um, I wrote here in my notes that you know we don't need miracles in heaven. Jesus is already there, but we need them here. Next one would be a psalm of healing. Something about this psalm that... Uh, that heals people. In fact, the Jewish rabbis used to tell people to say it seven times if they're feeling sick, they feel some kind a supernatural darkness is upon their life, be it depression or anything like that. Repeat it, keep repeating it, keep repeating it. It's healing in the psalm. Uh, one of the great healing evangelists, John G. Lake from Australia, uh, has written a lot of books about this, about how Psalms 91 has saved and healed people from cancer, from many different conditions. And his answer is this, it simply works. It is simply words that work. It stirs up faith and people get healed. It's how it is. You take it straight up from it and you repeat it and you repeat it. And all of a sudden, there is healing that comes because when we speak about this. Um, um, yeah, there's this uh, lady who wrote a book called Peggy Joyce Roof. Uh, a lot of healings and miracles. She gave a lot of evidences of how throughout life when she spoke this about people, uh, upon people, they are healed. It's a pretty good book, too. Um, so, let's go straight into Psalms 91. Uh, I'm not going to go into the full psalm. I'm just going to pick out a few verses here and there, and we'll have a quick look at them. Psalms 91, verse 1. He who dwells in a shelter, secret place of the Most High, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Now, notice something here. Shelter secret place. And what is this secret place? How do we get there? What do we have to do to go there, right? The Israelites are a little different from us. They don't have Christ yet, but we do have Christ. This changes everything, you see? Secondly is, I like the way the psalmist says, I will say to the Lord. The reason why I underline the Lord is because there's something very more closer than God in the way he said the Lord. Something more personal. Even if you read Genesis 1, 2, Genesis 1, you'll see when God created the heavens, it says God, basically it's Elohim, right? God created the heavens, God created the light, he called forth, the, he created this. Chapter two, when he talks about God created man, it changes from God to Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. So God in us, is, it's not just God the creator, it is actually also the Lord God. There's a personal relationship there there's a covenantal relationship there it has to have a relationship for us to call him Lord God he's a God of everyone, but to us, he's our Lord God, there's a big personal thing there, and that's why I love the fact that he says to my Lord, that's very important here so and when he says I was online the word trust again, trust implies a relationship and and you know and in a trust, if you want to have a, if you want to have a relationship in a trust, you need to have faith. And a lot of people like to preach about faith. You've got to have more faith, more faith. But faith is derived from trust in a relationship, right? So you can't just, you know, do more stuff to get more faith. That's not how it works. And when, when we go talking about faith all the time, people make the mistake of going to morality. You know, they start talking about your character, start talking about this is the stuff you got to do. you got to read your Bible every day, you got to get on your knees, you've got to pray. You, you know, it's, it becomes very much morality-based rather than trust relationship-based. You see? And so that's a, that's a big trap because people then, once you start working for it, you feel that you deserve it. And that's a big problem. Because then you're going to go and say, I did all this for you. Where's my healing? Or where's my blessing? Where's my protection? That's not how it works here. And I'll, we'll develop that a little bit more as we go on in our, um, my message. <clears throat> so, we've got to focus away from our morality. So, there's a, you know, a very uh, common saying, hearing comes by f- hearing the word of God. But, the original text doesn't say theos, it says Christo. You know, we quickly say, oh, hearing comes by f- hearing by the word of it's not by God. It's by through the Word of Christ. That's a big difference there. It's the same. God is Christ, and Christ is God. But the reason why I like to emphasize the word Christ is because when we say God, we our mind also goes back to Elohim, the God who created heavens and earth, the God who's Almighty, the God who's far away. But yet we are talking about a God who wants to have a relationship. And how can we know about this relationship? It's through Christ, you see. And so, to me. There is only one way for our remedy, for protection, for healing. Um, Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan preacher that I follow a lot, um, he wrote that Christ is our only remedy. He's, there's one quote he says I like is, "All your righteousness is, is not going to keep you from hell as a spider's web is going to stop a falling boulder." So, I want to keep you in that in that frame of mind as we go into about trusting and in relationship wise. So. How do we trust? How do we know about this? How can we trust God? How can we have this relationship with God? If we can't work towards him, then it means what? He has to come towards us. He has to come down for us. And which he did. When I say, also God, hearing the word of God, hearing the word through Christ, Christ came in grace and truth. That's in John. So there's grace and truth when you go towards him. He comes towards you and it's the grace and truth that pulls you into a relationship. And so let's go to Romans 5. And I love this verse from, um, from Paul when he wrote this. Therefore, having been justified, justified mean, simply means declared, by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And actually, verse 3 and 4 talks about character. And he goes into why five is because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. So, declare we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, Lord Jesus Christ is not just God. He's a personal relationship we have right now. He's our savior. He has come down. There's also awesome dynamic exchange from the Israelites to us. We have actually have someone that we can follow, know what he said and things like that. It's a relationship that we can have. And... Also, listen to the word access by faith into this grace. How do we have access by faith into this grace? By coming to church? No, it's by Christ, through Christ. It's the only way we have. That's why Christ is the only remedy. So, and also another word for grace is unmerited favor, in which we stand. And the word we stand in Greek is made in perfect tense, which basically means, in present tense, which basically means that, It's a positional thing. You stand in there, and you stand in there permanently. How do you have a relationship with God? By having his favor upon you. How do you get a favor upon you? Through Christ. There's nothing we can do. It has to be given to us. And this is a position we we won't be moved around if you realize that, man, I can't walk towards it. I can't do anything about it. What can I do? You can only receive. That is the greatest gift for God so loved the world. He gave his only son. And this is declared by God, all right? So now we have peace, we have great favor. And because of that, we can have a relationship with God. So we stand in, yeah, we stand in faith, and we stand in it permanently, and, yeah. So our only remedies is his permanent favor on ours, not depending on our actions, not on our work, because Romans 5, 6, in the same chapter, it says that while we were still weak, in other words, powerless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. That's, that's you and me. And he took our place, and this is like I like to say, he took our place so that we can go to the secret place. Remember in Psalms 91? God shall the Most High, I'll we'll go to his secret place. This is it. How do we go to the secret place? We must remember the God who took our place. The Christ who took our place so that we can go to his dwelling. And another thing about this is that we're talking about not just a position, it's a, it's identity. Right? Um, I remember there's this uh, great philosopher, I think he probably passed away, his name is Jacob Needleman. He's an agnostic uh, philosopher, he's one very good in his, his, you know, I, I kind of like his books because it's a lot about morality, it's a lot about philosophy, it's about life. And he wrote a book that says, why can't we be good? It's a very simple, uh, it's very simple, it's not a very simple thing, but he goes into the history of philosophy and humankind says that time and time again, we've proven that we cannot be good. But yet we have all these books in bookshelves saying, how to be a better person, how to be a better person, how to have a better life, how to have peace, how to have this. But unfortunately, he said that if we can't have peace. We can't be good. It's anything evidence has shown us again and again. We always choose to do evil instead of good. There are a few good things people can do. So what is it, he said. How can we fix this? And his answer is probably as best as you could come on a human understanding. Right? He says that we've got to stop thinking about our actions and stop listening to other people and figure out what they need and try to serve them that way that we can be good, truly. So a, it comes back to works. They have no choice. They don't understand grace yet. You see? And... But funny thing is when I was listening to one of his lectures, um, he went into a, a good discourse about life and, and, and his life and things like that and how his parents survived the Holocaust and that's why you know he's around, he's around and stuff like that. And so he was saying, his eyes glazed over and he was talking about that he went over to a hill in Portugal, it's beautiful scenery. And then he goes up to a beautiful monastery at the top and he goes in and he, he felt this overwhelming sense of being gifted something. And he's like, I thought something was given to me. I was looking at my life and my, uh, my history. There's a gift that's been given to me that I feel I don't deserve. He's like, it was overwhelming. And so he sat there in the pew and he was, he was contemplating this. He's like, this is so good. How did I get this? I, I feel I don't deserve it. What can I do about this? As he was thinking about this. One of the monks came about and asked him, are you okay? He's like, Yeah. But then he explained to him that I've got this spiritual feeling that something has been given to me, and it's so good. It's a gift. I don't deserve it, and I feel like it's far too good for me. What can I do? And among the monk looks at him and says, what can we do when we're given such a good gift but to receive? If we can't pay it back, the only thing we can do is to receive. And the priest went away. And then he, he went back to works after that. And so because I received it, now I've got to do more work for it. You know, um, it's a trap. But he understood a little bit more. We're being unreserving undeserved favor, unmerited favor. He understood grace almost. <clears throat> so when we focus on our identity in Christ, when we focus on what he has done, we are being transformed by looking at him. And therefore, that's when Titus, I like this part, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. That's Christ training us to renounce our godliness, worldly passions, and to live self control upright, godly lives in the present age, right here. So we want our kids to become good people, you know, following Christ and things like that. And we want lots of people to have a good lives. But basically, it's when you keep talking morality, you keep talking character, you keep talking work, work, work. It's not going to train them. It says very clearly here, what trains them? Grace. What trains them is Christ, who came in grace and truth. So we seem to have a lot of emphasis on doing right. I mean, I look at Canada and, and such, and there's a lot of emphasis of saying the right thing, doing the right thing, doing this. We get into this trap of saying, we're thinking we are good people by doing the right stuff. But if you really search the human heart, as Jacob Neilman said, we can't be doing good, because we can't. It's who we are. you know? And Bible addresses this straight away. And so, what I'm trying to see over here is, Relax on working out what is good and focus more on what has been done for you that is good. And Jesus was, you remember, he was uh, preaching as such and there were two sisters, right? And one was Martha, one was Mary. And Martha was the one working around getting everything ready and doing everything, you know, uh, for preparation of Christ and getting supper ready and things like that. But her sister Mary was just sitting at the feet of Jesus and just listening to him saying. And Mary got angry. She got um, Hurt. She's like, Jesus. Yes, I'm working so hard for you. Why are you letting this my sister sit there? Why don't you tell her to do some work? She's being so lazy, right? And Jesus' reply was, Martha, Martha, you work so hard tirelessly, but Mary, she, what she's doing, she's doing good. He uses the word good there. You see, and later on, Mary, you'll you know about later on in scriptures that. She, when Jesus was a little bit disrespected, she would come in with a perfume and oil and wash his feet in front of other people. You know? So don't worry about the actions. Focus on what has been done and dead actions will follow. The bravery and courage will follow. <clears throat> so, so when we receive this gift, we are not adopted to be part of his family. We're given a new identity. Right? So we can't work for it, it's been given to us and this is what sets us free. This is what sets us from, from anything that we think we need to achieve to prove to ourselves. Because when the father looks at us, he sees his son's blood on us. That we've been washed clean. We are made righteous before him. We've been declared righteous. And yeah, a, a new identity. It's not a, he's not fixing a broken identity. He's giving us a new identity, you see. He's not here to change your behavior. He's here to give you a new life. And that's a big difference. It's not behavior modification. Right? Every good self-help book, every religious books out there, will talk about being about this is how you can be a better person. This is how, this is the way to become a better person. But yet there's only one person in history who came and said, I am the way. Who is so counter-culture, counter-everything else. Everyone also says, this is the way. Jesus says, I am the way. You see? He's not here to fix a broken identity. He's here to give us a new identity in Him. That's so that we can always have the permanent favor of God upon us. So when I, mean, I was reading something like when I was a kid, and something bad, I mean, like, you know, I'd be like, oh, man, I didn't pray to God today. That's why I don't feel like I'm going to pass this test. Or like, oh, something bad happened to me because I didn't go to the dwelling place. I made it about myself rather than his relationship with me. You see? And you see how even good things, we can switch it around. We always switch things back to us instead of looking at God's perspective on us. And so, I wrote here one last line, we have been deceived and are still being deceived. What does that mean? I read somewhere from a quote of a person. If you are not a Christian, what would be the best tactic the enemy would do if you are a Christian now? So if you're not a Christian, we know. He's keeping you away from the truth. But if you are the truth and if you're in Christ, you've been saved, what is the best tactic he can do? The enemy can throw at you. The biggest, best tactic that he can do is to keep you focused on yourself. Always about what you do. Oh, you're not a good enough Christian. You know, you didn't feel happy when the person got that. Or you didn't pray enough for the healing. What is wrong with you? He keeps you always focused in the mirror, never looking up. That is the best, single best tactic he can use against Christians. He's already lost you to the kingdom, to to, to God. But he can make you ineffective. He can make you focus on yourself. And before you realize it's too late, almost. But don't worry, God always has a, has a way of miraculously working things out. Things will get done the way he wants it to, because his will will be done. Um, so, yeah, so there's something that, uh, going back to Genesis, that I felt that, wow, it's still true today. And he's still playing the same card over and over and over again. So let me just read up that to you from Genesis. And he said to the woman, "Has God indeed said you shall not eat of the tree of the garden?" This is, you know, back in the garden where you know the the Satan takes the form of the serpent, and he starts talking with Eve, right? So he's trying to tell her you should eat this tree, which God had strictly said, "Don't eat that tree; it's forbidden." Don't eat the fruits of that tree, right? So, so there's a conversation going on. We are picked into the conversation right now. It's like a play that's opening up. You know, and then we see this thing happening. And he said to him, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Why do he ask that question? What is the implication of it? What does it mean? When he asks that question, Has God indeed said? It took me a while to understand it, but funny, but over the years I realized what he was attacking the first way he attacked Christians is Is God really that good? Right? And this is why he's saying, "Really? Did God really say you can't eat every tree? Why? Why is He holding this back? Why is He indeed holding this back? You know, like why didn't heal you? Why didn't He heal you for this? You know, why didn't He give you this when you prayed for Him, prayed to Him? Why didn't He take care of that? Is He really that good? He also makes you first thing. He'll start asking you to question whether God is good, whether He cares enough for you. That's his first tactic. And I I experienced that." I remember when I was uh, searching for a job when I was graduating, and I'm glad Anne was there too. Um, And I was, uh, you know, I went to all these interviews, all these firms, and my friends started getting offers. You know, they're like, oh, I got an offer from this firm, I got an offer from this firm. It was through the uh, accounting recruitment. Anyways, a few years later, I still had no offer, even though I had more interviews than these guys did, right? So, I was like, oh. God, like, I interviewed, I prepared so hard, I studied so hard, I'm not getting these job offers. It's important because of migration and things like that, Uh, immigration purposes. And, you know, me and Anne wanted to get married, I need to start saving up for a wedding and things like that. And so I was really struggling with this. Like, God, you know, like, I don't get it, why are you not giving me this? You know, like, don't you see it's important in my life? Uh, I need it right now because I need it to be stable. And so my friends were texting me, oh, I got this job, this offer, I accepted it. So they all got a job, and I haven't got it yet. I really struggled with this. And so then, I was reminded back of an experience I had. Uh, this was a few years ago. Uh, I remember before I was talking about identity, right? And so, identity given, identity we work. I had a big issue in terms of, you know, God, I really can't love you enough because I actually love the world. That was straight up my thing. I struggled with it philosophically. I struggled struggled with it emotionally. I really said, God, you know, like, I want more money. I want to get a good job. I want more money. I don't think I can love you enough more than than I love money, right? It was brutal, but it was honest. And so I said to him, Lord, you know, I love life. How am I supposed to love you more than life, you see? You know, I want to have good family, I want to have good kids, I want to be rich, I want to be all that, so I, I'm going to find it, be, I'm going to, I, I, can't, I can't love you the way I, I'm loving these things, even though I know they are not permanent, but I want them, I desire them, you know, and so I was struggling with this a lot, I was reading C.S. Lewis, I was reading all these things, and then one day, I, in a worship service in church, uh, this was like years ago back in Singapore, I told God, I can't love you, I can't love you more than I love these things, I'm sorry. There's only thing that I only one thing I can ask for you is to show me your love so that I can love you. You have to you have to show me what you that you love me, that I can love you. So I know I know it all intellectually. Most of us do intellectually. You know, oh yeah, Jesus that for my sins, he loves me and things, but how are we gonna get that to it? I remember sitting in that, I was worshiping God, and I said, I give up. There's nothing I can do unless you show me you love me. And at that very moment. I was like kind of spiritually transported out. And somehow, supernaturally, everything clicked. I really understood the meaning of life. I really understood why Christ was so precious. I really understood that. Wow, God, you're worth more than everything in life. No wonder Paul in Philippians said, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, our Lord. For whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may be given Christ. I really understood that. I was like, wow, it was a supernatural experience. And within the same time, I understood this majesticness, this strip of life was just so beautiful, so pure, so lovely. Intellectually, you can't can't prove it intellectually. I was brought to this place and I was like, wow, God, you are so good. And all of a sudden, I'm transported to this hospital bed And it's me lying there, no arms, no legs, gangrene all over me. And there's people surrounding me looking at me at pity. And somehow the subtext of that situation was that I lost my family, I lost my kids, I lost my family, I lost everything. And I'm right there as in the worst state possible, like totally helpless. And there were two options in my heart, to be bitter at God or to continue to love Him. somehow I was in that state and all of a sudden I felt that just the worth of knowing Christ was was more than enough. I can still die a happy man though I lost everything and and the world considers me as worthless because I know the surprising treasure of Christ. That was enough. And it was back to worship. And I felt contentment from all that. And to me, recently, as I was talking about a job, that was a test of that. Was Christ knowing enough? And so... I was waiting for, a, waiting, for a, um, waiting for any call, nothing happened, no contracts, no offers. And I, I'm glad that Anne was there with me as I was like going through this with her and such. And I remember that night, I said, okay, God, I was reading something that you want actually a lot. I know, though I don't, I don't see any offers right now and it's important, I'm gonna know that you are good. And because of that, I know that things will be worked out. I don't worry if I don't get a job offer me getting a job or, for or not doesn't, de- it's not gonna determine whether you are good or not. Usually, I accept you are good and I left it at that. And that very night I told Anne, Anne, it doesn't matter if I got a job or not, Jesus is good, he is good and that's good enough. And that night, I woke up in the middle of the night because I felt like a, a strange presence in my bed and it was this dark presence and I could almost hear it saying. You should be hating God right now. He hasn't given you anything yet. All your friends have a job. You don't have anything yet. You should be hating him. Why are you not hating him? And I said, I dwell in shadow of the Almighty. I fear nothing. I went back to sleep. The next, the morning I slept, I woke up. At 9 a.m., I received a call for job offer. So I received it because I, I didn't care anymore because I knew God was good. And then I received the job offer. That's, that's definitely a miracle. That's definitely God showing who he is. Okay, so, going back to the deception. Indeed say number one, he will question whether God is really good and he will provide what you ask for. See? And he'll, he'll tell you, oh, he's holding it back because he knows that you need it, but he's not going to give it to you. he want to test you and things like that. And secondly, he will start questioning identity. First, whether God is good enough. Secondly, identity. You will be like God. My goodness, he has been playing this card to our children and society over the years. You know? But it's different. First, Eve didn't know what unhappiness was, because she was still not separated from God yet. So he couldn't play you'll be happy if you do this. See, but he played pride. He knew about pride a lot. He knows about us too. So now instead of saying you will be like God, did God say you can't do that? But you'll be happy if you do that. You see? This is the same card he plays. If only you can be if only you can be rich, you'll be happy. If only you'll be married, you would be happy. If only you can kids, you'll be happy. If only you can be a man, you can be happy. If only you can be a woman, you can be happy. If only you can love who you want to love, you'll be happy. Right? He's playing the same card. He's going back to identity again. He threatens your identity again and again. Right? And he makes us grab at these identities and trying to hope that this will give us happiness. But whereas in Genesis 1, we already know we lost the happiness when she said yes. When we said man and said yes. Is the same deceptica he plays and plays again? Are you gonna? Be, you'll be happy if you do this. You'll be happy if you do this. The search of pursuit of happiness, right? It's written in the U.S. Constitution, right? What a deception! As though happiness can be pursued and received, when actually joy pursued us. And so, and this is the funny thing. So, Plato if God is good. Whether God is good or not? You question your identity. The identity. Mostly Christians will be under a Christ has given you. You start focusing on yourself and say, "Look in the mirror." Thirdly, and this is the Narpai, he says, "Look, the tree it's, the fruit looks good. It looks pleas pleasant. It's supposed to be logical. It's supposed to be nice. It's it makes one wise, right? Why we why did God say no? Why can't you love everyone? Isn't love for everyone? Can't you love who you want to love? It's good. It's always pleasing, pleasant to the eyes, right? So." If it was a rotten fruit tree, if it was a rotten fruit tree, we will reject it. Yeah, why is God oh, not wanting me to eat a fruit? Because it looks bad. I don't want to eat it. But it looks good. Right? It's the same trap. Why is God not letting you love who you want to love? Why not God letting you marry who you want to marry? Why not God letting you do your stuff that you want to do? It goes back to looking pleasant. The fruit the forbidden fruit tree. It's very, it always looks good to us. It looks logical, right? So there are three things. Number one, he'll make you test God whether God is good or not. He'll test your identity. And the thing he'll tempt you with will seem very pleasant to the eye. Will seem that it's the right thing to do. Will seem it's a it's a, very, it's a beautiful thing to do. So how are you going to counter this? How are you going to stand in this identity that, that he has given so we can know the deception and to run away from it? And to me, it goes back to Psalms 91, but there's a similar verse in Isaiah 32, which you mean in the next slide. And it says, A man shall be as a hiding place. A man shall be as a hiding place from the wind, a cover from the tempest, a river, as rivers of water in dry place, as shadow of great rock in a weary land. What does it mean? We're going back to who we are in Christ. See, Christ is a person dear to the Father, he is our dwelling place, our sweet refuge, our abundant satisfaction. When the Father sees us, he sees us in the identity that Christ has given us. And in the next slide, we'll see that the three things that he counter us if there are three things we can go back to and stand on. Number one is our permanent favor with God. In Christ, there's abundant piece of safety and peace. You don't need to worry about identity. Go back to Him. Look at what He has given. Number two, there's a promise of satisfaction and full contentment, you know? And, and that's not just an intellectual step. That's a, that's a spiritual thing. It, it can mean physically, materially, and it can be phys- and spiritually too. Number three, there's quiet rest and sweet refreshment in Christ Jesus. There's peace. There's joy. There's refreshment. There's safety. There's identity in what Christ has given If you stick, when the devil says you've got to do this, go back to the cross and see what he did. Don't fall into the trap of what he the trap that he's playing the same cuts. It's kind of obvious already now. And so because and this is actually from uh sermon from Jonathan Edwards, a Puritan preacher. And you, you should look at uh, look look it up. Isaiah thirty two two, Jonathan Edwards sermon is right out there. He says it so beautifully. I won't do any justice to go very detailed into it, because you know he's he's put a lot of thought into that. So in all in all, what like to say. and and that's the thing when you look at Psalms 91 the Israel way of looking at us the way we look with grace we're living in a place in time of abundant grace and and nothing could be more clear than this when Moses in the Old Testament asked to see God's face God said no man can look at my face and live but I'll still grant you a request I'll walk I'll pass by you and you can see my back right And, and God replied my full goodness will pass by you and you can see my back go back to and then now john chapter 9 same word jesus passed by but he stopped he didn't just pass by he stopped he stopped and looked at the blind man born from darkness from birth so that's a big difference we have a god who stops and looks at us who sees us born in darkness and he comes and gives us light he gives us identity and in it we can find safe refuge in it we can find joy in it we can find refreshment we don't do struggle anymore because we can live from a work of rest. And so the last slide it will be I'm closing, it'll be Psalms ninety one, I'll just say it out loud. Because he set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I'll set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honour him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Long life, my salvation, it's Christ coming for us. Our identity. And with that, we can go to this psalms even more assured that we will be delivered. And with that, I'd like to, yeah, just close us in prayer as we uh, finish up the sermon. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I pray that As we are being attacked by this world and and the, the forces in this world, I pray, Lord, that eyes will be set upon you and what you have done. I pray, Lord, that you'll give us sweet satisfaction, sweet nourishment and safety and peace, Lord, that you have given us. I pray, Lord, that we will come to understand the permanent favor we have with you. Lord, it's not because of what we did, but because you have given, we can receive and take it and stand upon it. I pray, Lord, for for healing to flow from the sun. Pray, for, pray Lord, for, for blessings to flow. And I pray, Lord, that people come to know that, Lord, that you are good. Doesn't matter what happens here or then or later on, but, Lord, that you are unchanging. Your love is steadfast and you are good. Lord, that, yeah, that there be grace upon grace upon us. And uh, we lift up this congregation, our hearts into your hands, Lord. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.